Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A general, a warlord, and an economist. Three men sit at the top of the government of Sudan, each with his own agenda as the country fitfully heads towards democracy. Our correspondent speaks with all three to determine their prospects for success. And many cities would love to be on UNESCO's list of World Heritage Sites. Liverpool got there in 2004, but kept developing and modernizing. Now it's been stripped of the title, and Liverpudlians don't seem to mind. First up, though... In Zhangzhou, in China's province of Henan, more than a dozen people are dead after floodwaters fill a subway tunnel. Elsewhere in the province, an explosion at a chemical plant that had become inundated. Floods throughout central China have forced thousands to evacuate. In Germany, nearly half a billion dollars of aid has been approved after extreme rains there caused flooding that took about 200 lives. Many more are still missing. In India's metropolises of Delhi and Mumbai, floods and landslides. In America's Pacific Northwest, wildfires so enormous they're causing air pollution warnings thousands of miles away. From California to New Mexico and Alaska and Minnesota, more than 1,800 square miles of land have been torched thanks to drought. Wildfires are rampant in Siberia, too. In Madagascar, it's the worst drought in decades. In New Zealand, more floods. Directly ascribing these disasters to climate change isn't straightforward, but they're undeniably in keeping with the kinds of events that humanity must learn to contend with. The Paris Climate Agreement in 2015 aimed to limit warming since pre-industrial times to well below 2 degrees. That looks ever more unlikely. And every tenth of a degree beyond it brings increased risk and unpredictability of extreme weather the world has got a taste of in the past week. There's been some really encouraging progress, particularly over the last 12 months or so. Katrine Breik is The Economist's environment editor. Governments have been responding to the pressure and increasing their promises to cut emissions. They have made a difference to projections for where the climate may stabilize towards the end of the century. But ultimately, we are still heading for more than two degrees of global warming. How much more depends entirely on your assumptions. So if you're looking at government promises, 
you're looking at a broad range from anywhere between 1.6 degrees of warming, but all the way up to three degrees of warming. We should be taking a very serious look at what three degrees of warming looks like. And what does it look like? It doesn't look very good. In terms of the natural world, some of the clearest things that happen above two degrees is that all coral reefs basically disappear when you start to approach three degrees. That has impacts on fisheries. It has impacts on entire nations basically losing the protection that coral reefs provide off their coastline. You also get ice-free summers in the Arctic practically every single year. And then you start to pass some serious tipping points in terms of losing all of the ice in Greenland, losing a large part of the ice in Antarctica. And these have very long-term consequences on sea level rise in the sort of meters range. They may be irreversible. And then, of course, there's just the very straightforward impact of the world being that hot and what that means for humans, in particular in the tropics. And what will that look like in the tropics then? Potentially unlivably hot. So human bodies cool off by sweating. But the more humid it is, the harder it is to sweat. And so there's this measure that's known as the wet bulb temperature that reflects the combined effect of heat and moisture on the difficulty of keeping cool. And once that wet bulb temperature gets around sort of 31, 32, it gets really, really uncomfortably hot and difficult to function. Beyond 35, there's a threshold and and it's basically considered lethal to humans. Now, wet bulb temperatures in the region of 32 to 35 today are very, very rare. Beyond two degrees of average global warming, though, you start to see these more regularly, particularly in small but very densely populated regions of the Indian subcontinent. And beyond two and a half degrees, so definitely at three degrees, I've been told that pretty much all of the tropics start to see these levels of extreme heat stress for many days, weeks, or even months every year. But it's important to remember that areas that we traditionally think of as being cool will get a lot hotter too. But as you say, the estimates for this have a great deal of uncertainty, though it seems we will end up at a place that is uh, uncomfortable. I mean, how likely is the three-degree scenario specifically? The world is currently warming by roughly 0.2 degrees per decade. If we maintain emissions, we're going to be hitting 1.5 very soon. We're at 1.1 to 1.2 right now. We hit two degrees of warming sometime around mid-century, and we hit three degrees in the last few decades of the century, basically. There's scientific uncertainties on this. There's also huge uncertainties about what human societies decide to do. So if we don't do anything, there's 100% odds of getting to three. But it's worth noting that even if we do everything the models tell us we need to do in order to have a good chance, and in this case, that means a 66% chance of avoiding more than two degrees of warming, There are uncertainties in there that mean that you still have a 5% chance of hitting three degrees. Even more than usual, Katrine, the picture you're painting here is is fairly dire. Are these kinds of studies, these kinds of revelations, these kinds of thoughts uh, enough to spur governments to do something more active? Yeah, so I think three degrees would be disastrous. And there's enough of a chance of that happening today from where we sit that we should be looking at what it means so that we know what we need to avoid. But 
It is also very true that the progress that's been made in terms of renewable energies, etc., that is all very real and we should celebrate those victories. But we need to do a lot more if we want to stay within an envelope of warming that is relatively comfortable. And I say that bearing in mind the events of the last months, the floods, the heat waves and the fires and the real human losses associated with that. Governments absolutely need to step up and do even more in terms of near-term promises, what they're going to do in the next decade to cut their emissions. Long-term, mid-century promises are not good enough right now. And what does stepping up actually mean here? A really important part of this that could have a real impact in the short term is cutting methane emissions, which is cheap and which is easy. All you need to do is basically plug holes in the fossil fuel infrastructure. If you do that now, then you potentially gain time or a fraction of a degree on the warming. So that's something that you can do today that can have real impacts in the near term. And governments need to be investing quite heavily into negative emissions technologies, whether that's artificial trees, whether it's uh, carbon capture and storage with bioenergy, whether it's just planting more trees and probably a combination of all three, so that we can suck CO2 out of the atmosphere. At some point, the spectre of solar geoengineering also arises, where you sort of deploy a sunshade to bounce the sun's energy back out into space and artificially cool the, the planet in that way. I don't think anybody wants it to come to that point, though. Thanks very much for joining us, Katrine. Thank you, Jason. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. In April 2019, Sudan toppled its ruthless dictator, Omar al-Bashir, after months of protests against his rule. After the ousting, a power-sharing pact was struck between protest leaders and the military generals who had tossed Mr. Bashir out. Now, elections are scheduled for 2024, giving Sudan its third attempt at democracy since it gained independence from Britain in 1956. But tasked with shepherding the country toward that vote are three men with differing histories and competing agendas. Well, you have to start with a general called Abdel Fattah Burhan, who's the de facto president. Now, he's a sort of traditionalist stalwart of the old regime. Tom Gardner is The Economist's Addis Ababa correspondent. He recently visited Sudan's capital, Khartoum, to meet with the three leaders. Then there is Abdallah Hamdok. He's a former UN economist that was appointed by protest leaders in 2019. And then the third man, who's sort of the de facto vice president, is Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, who's better known as Hamiti. And he's a former camel rustler turned warlord. He rose to prominence under Bashir as the uh, a commander of notorious militia known as the Janjaweed. 
So as you can see, they're rather unlikely bedfellows, but it's the struggle for primacy between these three men, which is likely to determine the fate of Sudan's fragile transition to democracy. And you've been speaking to all three of these unlikely bedfellows. Yes. So I visited Khartoum and I was fortunate enough to interview all three of them. They were all very keen to stress unity. And if we wanted to mention one of the achievements that we have reached after the revolution is the peace agreement that we have signed. Mm. This is one of the biggest achievements. And certainly it's true, there have been some real successes in the past two years. Notably a historic peace agreement signed last October with armed groups in Darfur and two regions in southern Sudan. Uh, The repeal of repressive laws, such as one which notoriously banned women from wearing revealing clothing. And more recently, the restoration of full ties with both America and Israel. However, it isn't as rosy as they like to make out. How do you mean? What is it that challenges this idea of unity? Well, Mr. Hamdok, the prime minister, was a bit more candid and revealing in his comments. And he he did warn of a deep political crisis which could derail the transition if left unchecked. And he divided these challenges in three. First is division among civilian leaders, of whom Mr. Hamdok is one. Since 2019, they've been organized under a broad umbrella called the Forces for Freedom and Change. It managed to topple the dictatorship, but immediately after that, we started seeing some cracks and divisions within it. The second challenge is reigning in the military. Hamdok says he had very frank discussions with the generals early on about the army's excessive power in the economy. We have been dominated by the military. We need, as Sudanese, to reflect on this very critically and see how we could have a very clear idea about the role of the military in politics. Two years later, however, little has changed. General Burhan, the the de facto president, claimed to me that the army now had no influence in the economy. But the reality is it has, if anything, expanded its grip. Firms which used to belong to to Mr. Bashir's family, for instance, have been swept up by the military. So power sharing then among civilian leaders and and reigning in the military's role are the, the first two challenges. What's the third? The third challenge is fragmentation within the armed forces themselves. Sudan under Bashir was notorious for the kind of mosaic of different armed groups, rebel groups, but also within the, the formal army as well. You had a militia, for instance, created by Bashir as a counterweight to the army and the national intelligence, which was called the Rapid Support Forces. That has its own command structure, its own sources of finance, and that's under the command of Hermiti, Mr. Dagalo. As part of the power-sharing deal, he's supposed to integrate these forces into the army. That would mean ceding some of his power, however. General Burhan assured me that this will happen in the right time. But Hamiti, Mr. Daglo, insists it's already happened. And it's under the command of the head of the army. It's by the law. Do you think that jostling for power has the potential to, to spill into violence? Yes, so there were fears this could happen in June, in fact, when the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, and the army began barracking their respective headquarters in Khartoum with sandbags. 
according to one observer, we are at the point where they could have been killing each other in the streets. However, talks between General Burhan and Mr. Dagalo have since calmed nerves, it appears. But big questions remain about Mr. Dagalo. Few doubt he has presidential ambitions of his own. The army regards him as something of a threat. But that said, his footing is starting to look a little shaky. He's lost some of his patrons in the Gulf recently. The Saudis, the the Emiratis no longer have as much use for him. They, They used to pay for thousands of his foot soldiers to fight in their war in Yemen, for instance. So how do you think all of these competing forces are, are going to play out? What, what chance for a, a peaceful transition of power in those 2024 elections? Well, that's the million-dollar question, really. Mr. Hamdok said to me, Sudan has never had a successful transition. Um, it's always been dominated by the military since independence in 1956. It's had a go twice now at a, a sort of military-assisted transition into democracy like this and failed both times. The constitutional conference would allow us an opportunity of a very frank discussion about the role of the military in the the political uh, life of the country. So looking at it historically, the precedents are not particularly promising. However, I'd like to leave you with a more optimistic note, and that's from uh, a man called Yasser Arman, who's a kind of renowned rebel leader turned political advisor to the prime minister, who said to me, uh, the revolution isn't dead. It runs really deep into Sudanese society, which means if there was an attempt to kind of reverse the gains, turn back the clock, back to military dictatorship, that would run up against really stiff popular resistance. And I think therein lies some grounds for optimism. Thanks very much for your time, Tom. Thank you very much, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. They're queuing up in Lime Street in the heart of Beetleland. The English port city of Liverpool has a rich history. The group who've confirmed their fantastic race to stardom have certainly turned Liverpool into Britain's answer to any pop trends from across the Atlantic. Long before the Beatles made it famous again, it was considered the British Empire's second city. With its vast docks, it had grown rich from the transatlantic trade in wool and machinery, and it should be said from the trade in slaves. In 2004, its history and past opulence earned it a listing as one of UNESCO's World Heritage Sites, a distinction that's just been taken away. So the World Heritage Committee of UNESCO, the UN body, has voted to delete Liverpool and its waterfront from its list of World Heritage Sites. Matthew Hullhouse is The Economist's British political correspondent. This obviously is a big blow to the city, and yet the response to it, I think, is going to be more muted than you might expect. So I guess the first question is why Liverpool is on UNESCO's list in the first place. So there's an interesting history to this. The UNESCO listing really was a return to pomp for Liverpool, which had gone through some really extraordinary difficulties. So so by the 1980s, Liverpool really was said to have been on the brink. It suffered from the, the collapse of its docks and its manufacturing, which sent unemployment soaring, riots erupted... 
July 1981, eight days of rioting saw more than 70 buildings demolished or burnt down in Liverpool. And it had a, this enormous confrontation with Margaret Thatcher's government. She was urged by her chancellor to put the city into, into managed decline. So really, it was a pretty broken place. Since then, it's undergone this really remarkable renaissance regeneration led by culture, art, music, theatre, and also you know, lots of money coming in from enterprise, from the European Union, from the British government, which really has supported its art sector. And now the Albert Docks are a fantastic place where they really celebrate the history of the Beatles and the maritime heritage. And some of these magnificent municipal buildings from the port's heyday have been restored. So the UNESCO decision really recognised Liverpool's role as the second city of the British Empire, its really grim role as the engine of the slave trade and the Beatles more recently. But what has changed since then that has apparently changed UNESCO's mind? Yes, so this relationship really started to go quite sour quite quickly. And it is the story, I think, of a tension between a, a city ambitious and continuing to want to grow and a heritage body whose job is effectively to preserve sites. So only eight years after the listing, so this was by 2012, UNESCO put Liverpool on its long list of sites which are in danger. And the issue was with the development of plans for skyscrapers, for flats, for offices along the derelict docks, which you know, really have sat rusting for 50 years. And the breaking point, I think, came with plans for a new stadium for Everton Football Club, which is going to sit atop this crumbling waterfront to the north of the city where the docks were, which was unanimously approved by the city. Now, UNESCO calls it completely unacceptable. It says it's part of a serious deterioration of the city's heritage value. And our city leaders asked for UNESCO to come and visit before they made the decision, but uh, that appears not to have moved them and, and the decision has gone ahead. And you mentioned that the UNESCO decision wouldn't be met with the derision one might expect. I mean, why not? Yes, I, I think this is really interesting. So we know in much of Britain, in many British cities, growth and development is increasingly unpopular. New towers are often met with stiff opposition for people who feel that it's spoiling their view. So you might think that a big decision like this would cause sort of scandal and finger-pointing locally. But when I was up in Liverpool, that wasn't the mood at all. Now, the council didn't want to lose this, but they were quite clear they weren't willing to put a freeze on development as the price of keeping the designation. And a lot of people in the city were quite happy to see the back of UNESCO's listing. But that tension between heritage and, and history and the desire for growth must be pretty common on the UNESCO list here. Are these not tensions that are present elsewhere? Yes, I think they are. And one thing that city leaders in Liverpool said to me is that this risks being a difficult precedent for UNESCO if they have to get themselves in the business of deleting areas from their list because there's been too much development. And in lots of parts of the world, that's going to force cities to make the same sorts of decisions that Liverpool's had to make. And, you know, you're going to be perhaps seeing a cascade of similarly tough decisions. Matthew, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and we'll see you back here tomorrow.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.